Uh, I just want to commend you. I want to thank the team for the uh, um, privilege of being able to talk to you and, and on behalf of, of Tyron, the team leader. And it, I, I just don't take these things lightly. And so really, really appreciate that. So uh, I think it's awesome that young people in here are so excited about Jesus. And as a representative of the slightly older than young people crowd, uh, I want to say it warms our heart too. We love seeing passionate uh, people for Jesus. So a little bit about my story. Uh, I grew up not knowing my dad uh, in, in California, lived near the beach. My mom, two older sisters, uh, raising me. We are on welfare. And um, uh, when I was five, my mom died. And my two sisters and I went through the foster system, foster care, and some of those houses were okay, and some of them were definitely not okay, and that's a whole different story. Uh, but I landed up with a, with a family just before I turned eight years old, uh, and they, they were Christians, and he was the pastor of a little church in Santa Barbara, California. They had five kids of their own, so they took my two sisters and me, and, and that's my family to this day. And so... I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful for second chances in life. And it was, it was so many of these foster homes that I stayed at, it would have been crazy different. Uh, but to, to hear about Jesus and as an eight-year-old to give my heart to Christ, I've never, ever, ever regretted that. And God has always, always, always been faithful. And I, want to, I just want to say this about the faithfulness of God. Most of my story has been written. I have the advantage of looking backwards decades and seeing the faithfulness of God. And I want to tell you, if you're on the, the closer end of the start of your journey, that you can trust God. He is faithful and he is good. I've seen the goodness of God. I've seen the goodness of God and I'm so thankful for that. My parents... When I talk about my family, it's my parents experienced revival in the, in the 1940s. And uh, my dad went to Wheaton College and, and Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And his friends, uh, the, his, peers, his peers there and his friends were those five missionaries that were killed in Ecuador in 1956, just a few years after college. As young marrieds, they went down there to reach the Alca Indians and... Uh, so I grew up hearing tales of missionary conquests and, in, you know, going in, in the Brazil rainforests and, and Central Africa and things like that. And, and then Terry's parents, this was a little side benefit of my new family. Her parents were my parents' best friends. Our moms have been best friends since they were in junior high school uh, when they were 12 and 13 years old. So we would go camping together. I didn't pay much attention to her uh, until we matured. We grew older when she was 13 and I was 15. Then we were ready. I'm sure we caused our parents some consternation, but uh, we've been happily married now for 45 years. And uh, this coming February, we'll be celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. Did you catch that? 
There was a couple years in there we weren't doing so well. But God is faithful, right? God is faithful. So, and Terry's dad, he, they, they experienced that same revival. It was among Baptists and evangelical young people in the late 40s. And outpouring a passion for sharing the gospel and, and, and getting into uh, parts of the world, breaking open places. Her dad uh, was the director of California Youth for Christ right out of college. And at Billy Graham's first crusade in Los Angeles, 1949 or 50, somewhere around there, her dad was on the stage representing the youth of California and America on Billy Graham's first crusade. And so we grew up in, in this um, legacy of people who love God and serve God. And uh, I'm so happy about that. So back in, in America, this is our frame of reference. By the way, Terry and I love... Australia. There's so, there's so many good things about Australia. I love the word rubbish. We don't use that word. It is the best word ever. It's like, you know, take out the trash, take out the garbage, you know, no, no, take out the rubbish. Or if I've heard, I've heard Aussies talking to each other and somebody says something that's like, and, they go, and their friend goes, that's rubbish. Like this. So I love that. We love the word rubbish. I love, um, Chicken schnitzel. Nobody does chicken schnitzel like Australia. Nowhere, I'm telling you, I'm a connoisseur on chicken, uh, chicken schnitzel, and nobody in the world can do it like they do here. Um, but most of all, we love the Aussies. We love you guys. We're so, so thankful that God has made this part of our field. God, God gave us a word about uh, uh, the U.S., Canada, and Australia, and so that's kind of our, our lane, and so we're so happy to be here. Uh, but back in America in the 30s and 40s, uh, there was political turmoil. The, the church was ineffective. Sin was rampant everywhere. There was seemingly violence around every corner. There was corruption in the business world. There was uh, organized crime was on the rise and fear uh, ruled in the streets. The streets were filthy and there was homelessness and poverty and economic suffering, and uh, addicts passed out in the streets, and, and, and the nation was in rapid decline. But then, mostly in universities, young people repented of their sin. We just had a prophecy about that. Young people repented of their sin. And, and although they had a knowledge of the word of God, they got back into the word of God and, 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 and got right and, and, and lived lives of purity and passion and devotion uh, to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that that revival changed the nation that I live in. And the fruit is still, is, the nation is still bearing fruit today, and the world is bearing fruit from that revival. Now, that's not the only, there's revivals all over, the, all through the centuries and every continent uh, from time to time. That's how God moves, but this is my frame of reference. And uh, it changed uh, our nation and it swept around the world. And oh, yeah, I'm not talking about the 1930s and 40s, I'm talking about the 1730s and 40s. And we call that movement now the Great Awakening. Yeah. Changed the world. And it started with young people. Yeah. Just like the movement that we're part of. The, 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 honestly, the only movement I want to be a part of is the one that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. Yeah. And he started that, that movement with young people. 
when, when they had to pay their temple tax, Peter, or Peter says, are we going to pay the tax? Jesus said, yeah, go catch fish. There's two gold coins. Pay the tax for you and me. Do you know why? Because they only paid the temple tax if you're 20 or over. Now, it doesn't exactly say that none of the others paid the temple tax, but most theologians think that John, uh, the, John the Apostle, was probably between 13 and 15 when Jesus chose him. And most of those guys were in, in their mid-teens to late-teens. A lot of times we think, oh, there's these old apostle guys, you know, like this. No, but they were, they were young, young people who encountered Jesus, and they were never the same again. And I want to say, I totally agree. Paul said, this is an Aussie equip. And, and um, by, the end of, by the end of my talk here, uh, you'll see that this, this is just one talk. And yeah, it may be good. It might not be good. But I'll tell you what, it's woven in with all the others this week and with the ministry time. And God is, is baking a beautiful cake because you got salt and you got uh, baking soda and you got flour and you got sugar and you got some flavorings and all those things by themselves to take a spoon of flour is like, ugh, you know, it's kind of like Tony's talk yesterday. And so, but you mix it up, you mix it up. With, with all the other ingredients, you have this beautiful pastry. And so that's what God, I'm telling you, God is doing that this week. But, but this is Australia's time. I believe this. I believe that, that, that there is something happening here. And maybe not just here, but there is definitely something that is happening here that God's going to do. It's going to bear fruit for a long time. And, and, the, and the olders among us, have been praying for this for a long time because they saw it years ago and they've seen it prophetically over, over the decades. So, all right. Oh, one more thing. I don't usually recommend movies, but I recommend you try to watch uh, Jesus Revolution. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's straight out of Terry's and my high school days. So we went down to the Calvary Chapel meetings, down to the tent meetings. We got in trouble. My dad was a Baptist pastor, and deacons were all upset. We were going down to see those hippies and, and, and long hair and barefoot. And, and my dad, to his credit, stuck up for us. And he says, there's kids out there that are desperate. They're looking around, and, 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 uh, and they're using sex or drugs or just rebellion or whatever. And these kids want Jesus. He goes, you leave them alone. And so, good on you, Dad. So... Anyway, so I see that with young people around the world, full of expectancies, full of hope. I want to just—I just felt I wanted to read this psalm for you um, before I started. There's there's a lot of teachy stuff coming up here soon, but um, Psalm 78. Uh, I just think it's a, a good message for you, a word for you. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I'm saying, for I'll speak to you in a parable. I'll teach you from hidden lessons in our past, stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob, he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, 
and they in turn will teach their children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. We have a mandate, and I'm talking to you young people as well, you have a mandate to bring through the next generation, to make a way for them. It's much easier to follow somebody who had a machete hacking through the jungle if you're behind them and they've already paved a way for you. Then maybe you can make it a little bit wider and eventually, 100 years later, there's a freeway going through there. And so we all have a part to play in this. So, raising up new leaders. I just want to encourage you, be an example for others to follow. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul said. And, and if you're a leader that's um, making disciples who make disciples, ask God to give you a picture of them in the future. Because if it takes five years, 10 years, 15 years to take a, a brand new believer, it may be way less than that to bring them through, disciple them through, to be a church planner or a church leader or maybe a, a key business leader, kingdom leader out there in business or, or medicine or education. Uh, it takes a while to get those through. So start, if you have young people in your church and you're leading churches, say, God, show me who they'll be in 15 years and that's who I'm gonna raise them up to be. God gave me that word. Russ and Mary were with us in the Canada Equip about 12, 13 years ago. And God gave me a word uh, to begin looking at each one of the, our young people at that time 15, and add 15 years to them. Because I, I figured that in 15 years, I wouldn't be there. And I'm not. Lo and behold, it was 11 years or 12 years after. And I turned over our church a couple years ago. And, and, and now doing, the church that we led and the church that we planted down the road, uh, about 20 minutes, both the guys leading the churches today are leading those churches and their teams are, are, have grown since we left. Their, their finances have improved since we left. They're, they're raising up new people and releasing new people since we left, and, and they're growing. But both those guys got saved in our youth group. Both those guys. They were best friends since kindergarten. They both got saved in our youth group. And when we, when we took that church over, there was 25 people in the church. And when we left, it was a strong, healthy church, according to kingdom standards, you know. Uh, and we did have to set out a lot of chairs, and we did have three services a weekend, and, and all those kind of things, but it was a healthy community. But when we started with 25, there was two little girls in that, in that room. One was 10 years old, and one was 12 years old. Those two girls married those two guys, and now they're... Both those couples are leading two churches. I want to tell you, you can see, you can ask God, you can ask God to help you prepare people for the future. Parents, you're doing that with your kids now. You're praying for them. Kids, you may not realize it. You may not like it, but your parents are praying for you. Your grandparents have prayed, prayed for you. And so uh, I'll get to you if, this, if you're the first one in your, in your family to come to Christ. So we are going to the future. We're talking about going this week. Remember, Tyron wants us to talk about go. You're going to go into the future. All right? Who are you going to bring with you? 
And if Jesus doesn't come back for 15 years, I can guarantee you, I see something that will take place in 15 years. Guarantee you. I could prophesy into the future. Should Jesus tarry, your calendar will say 2038. That's it. That's what you'll see in 15 years. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, the future is coming whether you like it or not. Either you can let it bowl you over and complain that it's not like it used to be, or you can get ready for it, prepare for it, because it's coming, and we're going into the future together. So I want to I wanna, uh, encourage you in that respect, and in order to do that, we need to raise up and release New leaders, young people, we need to walk in obedience. We need faith. We need courageous faith. We need a, a priesthood of all believers. We need to make disciples who are making disciples. We need to raise up and release church planters. We need to be on co-mission with his mission. It's not our mission, it's his. We are co on co-mission with, with him. And, and, and we need to take back the ground that the enemy has stolen. And we need to do it not in our own strength, but the strength that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, provides not in our own intellectual ingenuity, but in hearing his voice and walking in obedience and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christine said a few years ago in, uh, at the Equip in Melbourne, she said this, and I wrote it down. Who on the other side of your obedience has never heard the gospel? There's people depending on your obedience to hear the gospel. And we want to be that people. And I say it's the people with the first generation hearts. So, uh, at the end of uh, Joshua, Joshua leads the children of Israel uh, out of the desert, across the Jordan. The walls of Jericho come down. Uh, they defeat, you know, the giants and the cities. They start taking the promised land step by step, which is a picture of your salvation. Uh, when God saves you, there's a lot of miracles that take place. You go through the Red Sea, the manna comes from heaven, God might heal you from addiction or fear or a backpack of shame and guilt. Uh, he does some miracles there, but then he says, now you go out and take the rest of the land step by step. We call that sanctification. We call that becoming more like Jesus. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm part of God's family but I still need to be growing and taking steps, taking back more of the enemy's ground uh, as, as we move along. And this is what the children of Israel are doing. Joshua has finished all that. They've kind of gotten all their, their land separated out. And, and uh, he's given them his last speech at the end of Joshua. And this somebody said it this morning. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And my son preached on this a few weeks uh, ago, and, and he said uh, Josh was actually taunting them. Like, okay, pray to your little idol that you made. You going to serve them? What are you going to do? Are they going to come and save you? Or are you going to serve the Lord? You've seen his miracles. You've seen the manna come from heaven. You've seen walls of Jericho fall down. You've seen the Jordan River stop up. You've seen that. Are you going to serve him? As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Who are you going to serve? So, Joshua chapter 24, verse 31. Israel served 
the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Seven times in Judges chapter 1, in the very next book, after Joshua's gone, seven times in Judges 1, it says, they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Ah. Joshua's thinking, oh my goodness, if he's looking down from heaven. I gave you one instruction, (laughs) one thing to do. God brought you here miraculously. You know what he does. You've seen the things he does. Now go and take out and drive out the inhabitants. Are we, are we content with sin in our life? Are we content with not driving out the inhabitants of our, of our self? When God saves us, he goes, okay, now you go out and you take the rest of it. You fight for every battle. You fight for everything that you're taking ground from the enemy. So in Judges chapter 1, they didn't do it. It's very sad. And we see the end of their story. Uh, in chapter 2, when Joshua dismissed the people... The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that God had done for Israel. And down in verse 10, and all that generation were gathered to their fathers, that means they died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. If we don't pass it on to the next generation, it takes one generation for the chain to break. We've got a job to do. And each one of you is a part of it. And in history, each of you is part of the same generation. I know some of you are older. You think of the younger ones are younger, and the younger ones think the older ones are older. We're, we're all 2,000 years younger than Paul, the apostle. I mean, we are this generation, that I think the great generation that may see Jesus return soon. In the Western world, recent polls say that more than two-thirds of evangelicals, that's people who say Jesus is the only way, don't say that anymore. They say there are other ways to come to Jesus. A majority of evangelicals in the Western world don't believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. A majority don't believe in the virgin birth. Among Christian teens in our Western culture, there is no discernible difference between their behavior and the behavior of their peers. Cheating, lying to parents, illegally downloading copyrighted material. You know, just there's no, there's no discernible difference. Divorce in the church is now greater than in the world. This is a good question. Why don't revivals last more than a few years? Why don't they last? I think it's because we're not called to bless. We're called to build into people's lives. And the way we do that is we go according to God's timing. He uses timing not by weeks or months or years, but by generations. It's our job. What kind of life, what kind of home, what kind of church are you building for the future? So a little chart here. It's very scientific. First, second, and third generations. The first generation, we just read out of Joshua, they knew God. They knew God. They didn't just know about God. They knew God. And they knew his works. They saw firsthand manna come down from heaven every day for 40 years. Their clothes didn't wear out. 
Their tents didn't wet. If you've ever gone camping, half the stuff you take is broken at the end of a week. They were out there for 40 years, and it didn't. God sustained them. They knew God. They knew. They saw his works. The second generation comes along, and they know God. Yeah, they know God. And they know about his works. They don't really see it firsthand anymore. I don't really see those. Yeah, my parents talked about, you know, groceries on their front doorstep when we didn't have any food. But, you know, we've always had food. I've never really seen that. I've heard about miracles in places. And the third generation comes up, and they knew about God, and they knew about his works. In other words, they didn't know anything. They didn't know the power of God. They didn't know God themselves. You've got lots of examples in Scripture. You've got Joshua and the elders and the new generation we just talked about. You've got David and Solomon and Rehoboam. That's first, second, third generation. David had a whole heart. And, and some people say that Solomon had a half heart because he started out okay and then didn't end okay. And then Rehoboam, man, he totally blew it. No heart. And then you have uh, in 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul says, What you've seen and heard in me, pass these on to faithful men and women who were able to pass it on to others also. So you have uh, Paul or uh, he says, I'll pass it on to you, and you pass it on to reliable people, and they'll be able to pass it on to others. So we're talking about more than first or second generation. Uh, we see it for Paul him, uh, uh, himself in Acts chapter uh, 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, all, as all of you are uh, this day. And so you see, I don't know how many generations of our fathers, Paul's talking about, but a long time, way more than two or three, and then he was taught under Gamaliel, and then Paul, and then you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, talked about that today already, God is weaving this whole story together, so you have Abraham, the promise, and the promise went to uh, Isaac, and, and it also went to uh, Jacob, Jacob his name means schemer. Everybody knows, you know, he, 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 he cheated his brother out of his birthright. He was a schemer. He was a conniver. And, and, he, and his uncle Laban, and you know how he got the spotted goats. I don't know how all that works stuff. But he became wealthy. And you know what? He was, he was just an unredeemed guy until he wrestled with God all night long. The day he was... To, before he was to meet his brother Esau, Jacob was all alone. He was afraid, and he wrestled with God all night long. And God changed his name from Jacob the schemer to Israel, which means ruled of God. God had captured Jacob's heart, and he became Israel with his 12 sons, the children of Israel. And he wasn't a, a third generation anymore who knew about, yeah, my grandfather Abraham, you know, he, and, and there's miracles, and he almost killed my, my dad on the mountain, sacrificing him, and yeah, all that. He heard the stories, but not until he personally encountered Jesus. And then you have, then you have uh, uh, Paul encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. I'm telling you what, he was never the same again. Paul, educated under Gamaliel, under the fathers. Now he's persecuting Christians. He's on the road to Damascus. I always pictured him on a horse getting knocked off his horse to the ground. The Bible doesn't say that. It just says he was knocked to the ground and he couldn't see. So while he was blind, on the ground, and he says, who are you? 
And Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In that instant, Paul, the educated man, the hater of Christians, in that moment, he realized that he was totally and utterly destitute and without any hope of mercy and avoiding the judgment of Almighty God unless he surrendered his heart and made Jesus his own Lord. And while he was blind for those three days, I know he did a lot of soul searching. And he was never the same again. Never the same again. To where years later, he's, he's giving a list. He didn't really want to, but he had to just to, for, to satisfy some people. His list of the things that he had suffered. Jesus told Ananias, who prayed for Paul, that the scales would come off his eyes. I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for me. And Paul says, he's given the list. He goes, yeah, I was, I was uh, beat with a whip three times. I was stoned until dead. I was... Uh, uh, beat with rods too, too many times to count. Uh, was shipwrecked. I, I spent three days in the deep. You know, I, I, we were in danger from robbers uh, and, and cold and starvation and no money and all these things. You ever read that list and just go, man? Jesus was whipped once. Once, thirty-nine lashes is one lash less than a death sentence. Because 40 lashes was considered a death sentence. A skilled executioner with those nine whips with little bits of jagged metal and bone on them, they could lay open your back and your inner organs so that 40th one, they could hit all your inner organs and you're gone. Jesus had that. And we we talk about his his excruciating pain and, and things like this. Paul goes, they did that to me three times. Three times. How long would it take to recover from that? And God says, I want you to go in this town, and they're going to beat you too. Uh, I did that once. I don't want to do that again. But when you encounter Jesus, there is no sea too far to cross, no mountain too high to climb, no punishment too great to bear, and no pain that you can't suffer. That's what happens to somebody when they encounter Jesus. They are in it to win it. And they're going to go all the way. Paul says, I run this race to win. I run this race to win it. And you know what? You're in a race. Are you running to win it? And I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the answer. You're the only one in your race. And there's only one way you can win your race. And that's if you finish it. If you finish it with a a field of one, you finish, you win. Finish the race that God called you. So, we're talking about generations. This can happen over families. It can happen in a church. It could happen in your own life. You encounter Jesus, and then you begin to slip away. So let it be applied wherever. Deuteronomy 4.9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. Grandparents, if you messed up the first time, you get a second shot. So 
Terry and I are blessed. We've got two kids, both married, so that means we have four kids. We've got seven grandkids serving Jesus. We're so happy. But I'm, I am thinking about writing a grandparenting book. The title will be, Go Ahead, Whatever, Who Cares? So, that's, that's grandparents. That's our job, right? Let them eat cake is chapter two. <laughs> sure, whatever. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, okay, so how do we get back on track? So first of all, these are, these are my thoughts. This is practical part here. Um, refocus, refocus. Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 18. So commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads. That just seems really weird to me. Like have, you know... Tie my Bible to my forehead. That's why they, they literally have the little boxes up here with the Word of God and tied to their wrist. And, uh, but the idea is what I think about and what I do, let it be saturated with the Word of God. Uh, teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road. Uh, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that, that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. So, have you met your kids' ministry team at your church? Do you know who the main kids' ministry team is at your church? You parents, you're the first line of defense in raising the kids because God gave them to you, not to your church. Yes, a church community, a healthy church community is a great place for kids to grow up where you have tons of aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas running around, watching over them and, and caring for them. But God gave those kids to you. The purpose of kids ministry in local church is to assist parents in their job, to help equip them in those areas. So, little side note here. This is a true story about a guy named Jonathan Edwards. His name is fairly uh, familiar to some of us. And then this other guy who was a well-known criminal in the 1700s, his name was Max Jukes. This is, they actually studied their families for generations. And um, they lived about the same time, and their families were studying. Max Jukes was an alcoholic and a criminal. Max Jukes had 1,026 descendants. 300 of them went to prison. 190 were prostitutes, and 680 became alcoholics. Jonathan Edwards had 929 descendants. 430 became ministers of the gospel. 86 became university presidents. Sorry, professors. 13 became presidents of universities. 75 wrote good books. Seven were elected to the United States Congress, and one was elected as vice president of the United States. You cannot tell me that generations are not affected by my choices today. The choices you make today will affect those to come for as long as Jesus tarries. 
So the second line of defense are grandparents. Work on those books. Give me some good titles, grandparents. So for leaders, you know, kids' ministry is important, but our job is not to raise those kids. It's to help the parents raise their kids. And then the second thing is to reteach. I used to be in education, and uh, when I was a, a school headmaster, uh, I never said this. You know, we taught third grade last year. Let's not teach it again this year. <laughs> you know, we don't need to do that. No, why? Because there's always new people coming in, and we're always laying foundation and building on that foundation. Yeah. Always, always, always. We have to reteach stuff. Don't get bored yeah. of reteaching stuff. It's like we're preaching to a slow-moving train, you know? It's coming by. Hey, I want to introduce you to Jesus, and he loves you so much. He died for you. And, you know, repent of your sin, and he will clean you up, and he'll give your life purpose and hope and, and, and give you a, you know, hey, let me tell you about Jesus like this. <laughs> so this is what you're doing. You're doing this all the time. And you're trying to build a team around you to help you do that. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, and so I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God, be persistent, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. And the third major point here is to return to God. Refocus, reteach, and return. But I have seven subpoints into this one. All right, are we ready? Return to God. How? Obey. Yeah. Obey. Nehemiah 1.9. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. We talk about being in the presence of God. We talk about uh, hearing God's voice. Then what do you do with that? When you hear God's voice, there's only one thing you can do. Obey. Obey. It's a great demand that we have. How do we return to God? Number two, wholeheartedly. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them hearts that will recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. Parents, your kids are not going to be compelled to follow Jesus if you're serving him half-heartedly. Young people, your friends are not going to be compelled to follow Jesus if you're serving Jesus half-heartedly. Yeah, yeah, like this. Oh, well, that's compelling, you know. I want to follow that. Second Chronicles 16.9, this is out of the New American Standard Bible. This is, this is probably in my, I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favorite verse, but it's in the, it's in the top three or four. I give this to all my kids, all the students that I had. And For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Why? That he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Can you picture that? It's like God's going... There's somebody. 
wholeheartedly. And I am now going to strongly support them. Do you want God's strong support? Wholeheartedly follow him. Number three, how do we return to God? Stop sinning. Zechariah 1, 3 and 4. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the early prophets said to them. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. This is the first sign of a true revival is repentance, not so much from the world, but from Christians, from believers. And it was prophesied up here on the stage this morning. How do we return to God? Number four, we get rid of our idols. Jeremiah 4, 1, O Israel, says the Lord, if you wanted to return to me, you could. You could throw away your detestable idols and stray away no more. And if you will swear by my name alone and begin to live good, honest lives and uphold justice, then you will be a blessing to the nations of the world and all people will come and praise my name. So we get rid of our idols. Well, I don't have any idols. I don't carve any idols. Yeah. How about that boyfriend or girlfriend? How about that career? How about that career? How about that car? How about your reputation? I've got a reputation to uphold. Anything that gets in between you and Jesus is an idol. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. How do we return to God? Well, this one's also in there too, with our money. Somehow, money is an indicator of our heart. And I kind of know why, because it takes, we spend our life, we spend our time, which we will never get back, on money. I do a little bit of work here so I can get some money, so I can pay for the other things I need. It just kind of represents our life. And it's been said that the, the, the weakest muscles in a Christian man's body are the muscles which require his shoulder to go back and reach into his wallet <laughs> so he can tap his card or something like this. Malachi, or for Paul Zanardo, Zanardo, this is the only Italian author in the Bible, Malachi, Malachi, 3-7. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And God says, will a man rob God? Yet you, the whole nation of you, has robbed me of tithes and offerings that are due to me. Test me now, says the Lord, and see if I won't open for you the heaven, the heavens, and pour out for you a blessing that you can't contain. Test me, try me. This is the only place in Scripture where God says, try me. And you might say, well, that's the old covenant. Well, Jesus said not one stroke of the pen will cause this law to pass away. Have we thrown out thou shalt not kill? 
oh no, that's love, so we can go ahead and kill. You know, it's like, no. Have we taken out thou shalt not steal? No, we still follow that one too, right? In fact, if you look at the old covenant and the new covenant, the old covenant is much easier to follow. Because the new covenant has to do with your heart. The old covenant says, don't look on another man's wife with lust or you've committed adultery. I mean, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, don't even look. Which one is more difficult, the act of it or even the thought of it? The old covenant says, don't murder. And Jesus said, no, but if you even hate your brother, if you even hate your brother, you've committed murder. Ah, man, like this. Get these thoughts out of here. Why? Because God is not so much concerned about our actions as he is our heart. He goes, I want your heart. I want all of you. I want my Holy Spirit to come in, to come in to your heart. It's just like you invite him into your home. Hey, Jesus, come on in. And in America, we call it the living room. Some places they call it a lounge, wherever it is, that front room. The place in your house that's almost always clean, you know. It's like that room. <laughs> Sit right here, Jesus, you know. No, 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 wait a minute. You're going to go back in the cupboards, in the closet? Heaven forbid, Jesus, don't go in the garage. <laughs> don't check under the bed. But we want to say, Holy Spirit, you have freedom to look in every area of my life with your searchlight, with your holy spotlight, and get rid of any sinful way in me. I want to give you my whole promised land. I want to take every step that's necessary. How do we return to him with our first love? Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's not up there, but... This message to the angel of the church in Ephesus, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say their apostles are not You have dis and discovered their liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Those are good things. And he goes, yet I have this thing against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Return to your first love. Jesus wants that first love, that passion. You know, on the day of our wedding, I said to Terry, I love you, committing my life to you. What if, what if like two years later she said, do you, do you still love me? And I said, well, on the day we got married, I said I loved you, so if I change my mind, I'll let you know. How would that go over? <laughs> Not very well. Not very well. Jesus says, love me and do the things that you did at first. Jesus, remember, I'll cross any uh, a sea, I'll climb any mountain, I'll suffer for you, Jesus, I'll do whatever it takes. Uh, we're going to go to first service today, or eh, let's just not go at all today. It's on video, right? Keith Greed, a young man ahead of his time, <laughs> talking to young people in the 60s. He goes, you want to serve Jesus, you can't even get out of bed. You can't even get out of bed. Young people, if you want to count for Jesus, I want to tell you something. 
The more you want to serve him, the more it's going to cost you. And it's not up to the leaders of your church to go to bed early on Saturday night to come refreshed and ready to give on Sunday. It's your job to go to bed early on Saturday night, get a good night rest, and come full and ready to serve and love on the people. All right, so, number seven. How do we return to him? Do what you used to do. Word, prayer, fellowship, gathering together, doing what's right, loving mercy, walking humbly with God. Jesus said it's your first love that you've left. We all need to become and live as first generation believers. Not just knowing about God, not just knowing about the things that he's done, but knowing God. Knowing God and knowing intimately the supernatural works that he does, the words that he gives us, the ability to speak in his name. So, everyone leaves a legacy, like Max Jukes or, or, or Jonathan Edwards. You might be sitting here today and say, I don't, have a le- I don't have generations. I don't have generations coming before me. My son, who is a fifth generation pastor, said he grew up with the pressure the pressure of not breaking the chain, of not letting Jesus down. Not not like he was earning something, but the call of God on his family and positioned him for where he is now. And you might say, well, I didn't have that. Here's what I want to tell you. If you didn't have a background of a family that loved Jesus, and you're one of the first in your family, maybe you are the first in your family who came to Jesus, you can start a legacy from this point on. And if Jesus doesn't return, and I know I'm I'm anticipating Jesus' return, but we don't know. Paul thought Jesus was coming back, you know, imminently. And every generation down through history has thought that. So I'm going to prepare. I'm going to live like Jesus coming back today, any moment, but I'm also going to prepare as if he's not. And I'm going to prepare my kids to go on and on and on and on. You have this wonderful responsibility, this wonderful privilege of making a way for others to come past you. And if you strayed, and if you're off track, you can get back on. So easy. You know, Jesus, last night, oh, man, I said, yes, yes, yes. And then this morning I said this, eh, like this. I'm off one degree. <sighs> Get back on track right now. Back on track, constantly course correcting. Because one degree after, you know, 12 hours is not that big of a deal. But one degree off after 20 years is a big deal. You're lost. You're way out there. And so today's the day. Let's stand together.